If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 17. Um, I must start off with a confession. I normally like to get um, our, an outline into the bulletin for you. Um, and so, of course, the week I have six points is the week I don't get an outline in the bulletin. And so, um, yes, there's quite a lot of points this morning, but I will try to um, articulate those cle- clearly, and hopefully you can follow along with me. If you're in Acts 17, we're going to be in verses 16 and 17 this morning. But before we begin, there's a couple definitions I think are going to be helpful for us as we dig into the scripture this morning. The first is a definition for a word um, that if you've grown up in church or you've been around church for a while, you may have heard this word. It's the word evangelism. Um, We talk about evangelism quite a lot. Maybe something you've heard from the pulpit or you've seen in a bulletin or something. Um, Evangelism is really important, but it's a word that we often do not define. Um, we use it. It's part of our Christianese, kind of the, the, the language that we use as Christians, um, but we very rarely take the time to make sure we're all on the same page. And so this morning, for the purposes of the sermon, we're going to define the word evangelism as this, the intentional verbal sharing of the gospel. The intentional verbal sharing of the gospel. Now, um, if you go with John this week down to seminary, and you sit in one of his classes, and you ask on a test, um, what is the definition of evangelism? I don't know if that's going to get you an A or not. Um, Only he could answer that question. Um, But this is a, for our purposes this morning, this is a really good working definition. Um, The intentional verbal sharing of the gospel. Um, And with that, one of the words we need to define in there is gospel. We need to make sure that we're all on the same page with this. And so the gospel is this. The gospel means good news. That's what the word literally translated means. It means good news, um, but it's prefaced by bad news. The bad news is each and every one of us are sinners. We are all sinners, and because of our sin, we are destined to face the eternal wrath of God. For all eternity, God will pour out his wrath upon us. That is our reality because we are sinners. That is the bad news. The good news is, is that Jesus, being fully God, fully man, was sent by the Father, born of the Virgin Mary, who lived a perfect, holy, sinless life on this earth 2,000 years ago, and ultimately he suffered under the Roman authorities, crucified on a cross where he was buried in a tomb. And he lay in that tomb for three days, eventually on the third day, rising again, where he was seen by the disciples and over 400 witnesses, until eventually he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he will sit until he returns to judge the living and the dead. That is the gospel. The reason that is good news is because that is the only way in which we can be saved from our sins, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so it is good news. And the Bible tells us, and we actually see earlier in Acts, if we were to flip back to Acts chapter 2, that the way we respond to this gospel is to believe it and to repent of our sins, to turn away from ourselves and turn away from our sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. That is what we're called to do, to believe the gospel and repent of our sins. And so evangelism is the sharing of that truth. It's intentionally, verbally telling people that they are sinners who need Jesus Christ to save them and telling them what Jesus has done to save them and calling them to believe and repent. And so this morning, what we're going to do as we read Acts 17 is we're going to see some, what are some realities, what are some truths about evangelism? We're going to see this from Paul's own life. You know, often when we read in Scripture, we're reading Paul's letters or reading accounts of people. But sometimes, especially in the Old Testament, but here in the book of Acts, we get to read what these people actually did. And it offers us great insight into what they believed and how they put that into practice. And so if you have your Bibles, um, quick reading this morning, but important from verses 16 and 17. This is what's written. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. 
as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Six truths. There's six realities of evangelism packed into these two verses. The first reality is this. Evangelism is always led by God. Now you may be saying, I didn't necessarily hear the word God mentioned in those two verses. Um, you know, in fact, it's kind of weird. He, he seems a little absent from what's happening here. What is it, how does God lead anything that's happening here? Well, there's a couple of things that we have to understand about the bigger context of the book of Acts to get this. First, the only reason that Paul is even where he's at is because God radically and miraculously saved him. And then God radically and miraculously sent him to the Gentiles. The only reason he's in Athens is because God has sent him as a missionary to the Gentiles. And then we would see that the reason Paul's in Athens is because God has radically and miraculously led him, instead of any other city, led him to Athens. And then he's worked the circumstances in such a way that he's left in Athens by himself. God has orchestrated the entire thing so that Paul is where he needs to be at the time he needs to be there. This is not a principle unique to these verses. We see throughout scripture the idea that God is the one who leads out in evangelism. Nobody is more mission-minded. Nobody cares for saving the lost more than God, right? This is the, the, the impetus of Romans chapter 5 verse 8, right? For God so loved us, right? God loved us and sent his son for us, not while we were great people, but while we were sinners, right? God himself, by sending Christ first and then sending the Spirit, leads out in the work of evangelism. And so when we partner with God in evangelism, we do not lead. We follow his leading. And so it's important to lay the foundation for everything we talk about with evangelism with that truth, that we are just following what God is already doing. And so Paul examine, shows us this, right? He depends on God, right? We would see in his letters and through the book of Acts that Paul is regularly and routinely depending on God to lead him. He's willing to wait for God, like we see here in, in Athens. He's willing to go when God tells him to go. But everything he does, especially his evangelism, is led by his dependency on the Spirit. You see, we talk a lot about our willingness and our dependency on God, but that's true in evangelism as well of every other area of Christian discipleship. We must be dependent on the Spirit, on God, to lead us. And so we can't forget that as we move on to the other areas of evangelism. So the first area is that evangelism is led by God. But the second thing, evangelism begins on a personal level with heartbreak. Evangelism begins on a personal level with heartbreak. Look at verse 17 or 16 again. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Depending on your version, it may say moved, it may say stirred up, right? The idea is that because of what he sees, he is emotionally and spiritually moved. The truth is, unless we are heartbroken over sin around us, we will never be moved to sharing the gospel. And I think there's, there's two ways to look at this. There's a personal way and an external way, internal and external. The external way, right, is Paul sees the sinfulness of the people around him. But here's the thing. We see the sinfulness of the people around us every day, right? Because sin leads to brokenness. And reality is every one of us sees brokenness every day. Listen, unbelievers recognize sin for what sin is. Unbelievers recognize brokenness. 
So just seeing brokenness or sinfulness or idolatry in the world around you is not enough to move you to evangelism. Because if that were the case, everybody everywhere would be evangelists. Because everyone sees brokenness all the time. You do not have to be a believer to understand that this world is broken. So there has to be something internal. And what is that internal reality? Well, I think Paul demonstrates it for us here. Um, we didn't have time, but, but after kind of in verse 22 and onwards in chapter 17, Paul um, gives a great sermon to the people in Athens. And one of the things that Paul highlights in the sermon, he says, I've understood you Athenians are very religious but you've missed the mark. That's literally what he says. He says, you're so religious that you don't even know how religious you are. You're so religious that you tried to serve every God. If there was a person who counted himself as religious, it was Paul. And I think Paul sees something of himself in how the Athenians worship. And it seems so weird, right? Paul would be the last person to categorize himself as an idolater right? When, when Paul is a Pharisee, right, they cared a lot about not following idols. They say, well, this is literally the complete opposite, right? They have so many idols, they don't even know the idols they have. How is that the same as Paul? Paul sees in himself what these people have, right? In their desire to be religious, they have missed God. They become so religious that they don't even understand what it is that they are worshiping, who it is that they are worshiping, right? And for these people in, in Athens, it became by making idols, and having a city full of idols. For Paul, it became keeping the law. But Paul understood that he was no more a sinner than they were, and that his sin, while expressed differently, had the same root cause as their sin. And so here's the truth. Heartbreak from sin comes not when we realize that other people are sinful, but when we realize that we are sinful. Because when we realize that we are sinful, we realize how amazing it is that what we just sang, right? That Christ died on the cross at Calvary for us. And then we realize, right, that there's no merit in of ourselves. It's nothing in us that makes us worthy of being saved. And so when we see other people sinful, we realize that we deserve the same fate as them. And so we're moved because we realize that the only reason that we are saved is because of God's grace and the proclamation of the gospel with whoever shared it with us. And so we are moved to give them the same opportunity that we have because we are no different than them. We are no better than them. There's nothing about us that makes us deserving in a way that they are not deserving. And so Paul, right, it's heartbreak that moves him, right? He sees the city full of idols that moves him. And he realizes that they are just as sinful, they are just as broken, they are just as lost as he was. And if God hadn't appeared to him on that road, he would be just as lost at that present moment as they were. And so he, knowing the gospel now, being saved by God, feels a great desire within him to go to people who need to hear the gospel. Because he understands, right, what he'll later write in the New Testament, that unless somebody goes, they cannot... The gospel cannot be proclaimed, and so people cannot hear, right? The gospel takes proclamation, and so it takes heartbreak because people must go. So God leads, and he leads his people to being broken over their sin and broken over the sin of others to go to other people. And this kind of leads to point three, which is that evangelism must be intentional. Evangelism must be intentional, in verse 17, so, so after Paul sees the city full of idols, it says he's moved, right? He's moved to action. And Paul does not wait for people to come to him. It says he goes. He goes to the synagogue and he goes to the marketplace. He goes to where people are. 
When feeling the desire to share the gospel, he does not wait for people to come to him. He goes to where people are because he is intentional in his evangelism. The reality is Paul understands that people are not looking for God. In fact, he'll write this in Romans. Romans chapter 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have become together worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, Paul understands the reality is because on our own we will never seek God, it's God's leading and the leading of Christians to go to people who are not seeking God that brings salvation to them. And so Paul understands that he must be intentional because if he just waits for people to come to him, unbelievers are never going to come to him. Because they are not seeking God. They do not want salvation. They don't even know that salvation exists. And so he must go to them in an intentional, in a personal, in a, in a direct way. Because if he does not intentionally go, who will? Specifically in this context, we actually know it's just him. Right? The rest of his companions, for, for the reasons of God, have left him. He's by himself in Athens. It's literally just him. There's nobody else to depend on. He can't depend on Timothy. He can't depend on Luke. He can't, there, there's nobody else to depend on. If he does not go in this circumstance, there's nobody else to go. And so he must be intentional in his going. The reality is the same for us. We cannot wait for people to come to God. People are not standing outside our door, knocking on it, waiting to enter this church. In fact, the reality is there's no church like that. There's no church where there's a line of people waiting to get in the door. Because the reality is people do not seek God. Now you may say, well, well I can think of some examples. Um, and I challenge you to think about what those churches actually teach when you think of those examples. Because people are knocking on the door to get into what the world teaches. Because it's appealing to them. Because they are of the world. And so I challenge you to really think about, am I intentional in my evangelism? Paul was. He knew. There's a great quote by, by Charles Spurgeon, who's kind of like the, the, the stereotype of Baptist preachers. He's kind of the first Baptist preacher that, that really got famous. And, and he has this great quote about how intentional we have to be about sharing the gospel. This is what he says. He says, if sinners are to be damned, at least let them leap over hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exhortations. And let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. As a man who saw the intentionality of evangelism. And the reality is if we're going to be intentional about evangelism, it needs the next point, that evangelism must be focused on people. Evangelism must be focused on people. Now you might say, well, duh, of course evangelism has to be focused on people. But I think that that's something that we may take for granted, and that shows in how we do missions, how we think about evangelism. You see, Paul, when, he, when he's moved, he doesn't go build a house. Right? Paul, when he's moved, doesn't feed the poor. Paul, when he's moved, doesn't go dig a well. 
And that's not to say any of those things are bad things, but Paul is moved because of the sinfulness and idolatry, and so he solves the problem by going and proclaiming the gospel to people. There is a reality that sometimes meeting physical needs is necessary for people to hear about their spiritual need and hear the gospel. That is a reality, and we all understand that on some level. But the truth is, we are not called primarily and first and foremost to go proclaim a gospel of physical salvation. It is ultimately physical salvation, but it is first and foremost a spiritual salvation. And so we go to people because people are the ones with spirit. We do not do physical works that are not focused on people. Everything we do is focused on the people because they are the ones that need saving. Now you may say, okay, well, this seems a little redundant. It seems a little simple. I've got it. Move on. But I I can't harp this enough. I, I can't emphasize this enough because I've seen plenty of mission trips. I've seen plenty of projects. I've seen plenty of great things done that neglect that the reason they're supposed to do them is so that people can hear the gospel. Everything we do as a church is geared towards the fact that we are working with and living beside people. One of the things I've appreciated about our missions team is they remember this fact. When they think about First Fridays and how we organize First Fridays, or when they thought about how we organize and how we put together a five-year plan, they were constantly thinking about how do people hear the gospel, and how do we put our people with other people so they can hear the gospel. And and there's tons of ways that this fleshes itself out, right? We realize working with people that it's difficult and it's challenging, right? But, But we remember that we work with people. And that when we do evangelism, we're not focusing on things, we're not focusing on stuff, we're not focusing on works, we're focusing on the people who need to hear it. And this kind of leads us then to the next one. You see how these all kind of build on top of each other. And that is that evangelism is contextual. Evangelism adapts to its environment. Because you're dealing with people that have different cultures, that have different contexts, that have different backgrounds. Now here, I need to specify what I mean by this because there's a a right way to understand this and a wrong way to understand this. There's a difference between message and method. The message never changes. The gospel was always the same, is always the same, and will always be the same. Nobody has ever been saved apart from Christ, and nobody ever will be saved apart from Christ. There's only one name given under heaven by which man must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. The message never changes. There are times and circumstances where the method needs to change. Right? The, 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 probably the easiest example to understand is if, if we record the service, which we do in second service, and we post it on YouTube, right? we do every Sunday, and somebody hears that, hears the gospel, and believes, and repents. That is evangelism, right? They've heard the gospel, is intentionally shared with them, and they believe and repent. That is a method that could not exist until the 21st century. But the message is the same, right? The method has changed. Now, what's important to understand is that methods convey meaning. Not every method is good. Not every method is equal, right? We, we need to examine the methods along with the message. Some methods are bad. Some methods are good. Some methods work better in circum- certain circumstances, right? Your method conveys what you believe, But what we understand is that sometimes how we convey the gospel needs to change based off the context. In fact, we know this is what Paul did. There's some big clues. First, it says he reasoned. It says he reasoned with them. Now, why is that a clue? 
Well, you have to know something about the history of Athens. Athens was known as a place where people liked to debate. In fact, we know from context that Athens was known as a city where they were constantly debating. If you think our politics are bad, you should have lived in ancient Athens. That's all they did all the time, was debate and think. And we see, if, you were to, if we kept reading in verse 18, right, we see that these Epicurean and these Stoic philosophers come to him. These were basically like, it's not an exact comparison, but it's kind of like the Republicans and the Democrats, right? Like, it's the, it's the two big kind of political forces that kind of, that run the city, and they were known for their reasoning, for their thinking. They were philosophers, right? And so when, when I think Luke's cluing us into something when he says, right, that he reasoned with the people there. These were people that were used to reasoning, to debating, to thinking through things. And in fact, what we see, if we were to keep reading, and we got to verse 22, and we were to read Paul's sermon here, we see that he actually quotes, to prove his point, he quotes not just scripture, but he quotes poets from Athens. Paul knew the culture so well that he was able to quote their own poets back to him to prove his point. He used their culture to show them the truth of the gospel. The reality is every person is different. Every person has their own background, has their own circumstance that when we come to preach the gospel to them is weighing on their mind. And so one of the things that is our responsibility is to make sure that they understand the gospel, but to do that, we must understand what they think about the gospel first and foremost. Right? We cannot know what they don't know unless we ask them. And so we must contextualize our proclamation of the gospel in a way that makes sense to the person hearing. In fact, if you have kids, you've all done this, right? If you shared the gospel with children, you probably have contextualized the message, right? Even if it's just as simple as changing words in a way that a a six-year-old can understand, right? If I'm sharing the gospel with a six-year-old, I'm probably not going to use the word propitiation and atonement and, you know, lots of other giant big words for them to use, right? I might do that if I'm sharing the gospel with a seminary student, Right, because they understand what those words mean, right? That's context. The message hasn't changed, right? The message is still the same, but I'm contextualizing it to language that they can understand. Paul does this. He understands where he's at. He understands how the people think, and he does it in such a way that they can understand the message he's bringing to them, right? Proclaiming the gospel in a way that does not take into account the context might as well be proclaiming the gospel in a different language, because you can speak it, you can share it, maybe in a language they understand, but in such a way that they don't understand a single thing that you're saying. And you're missing the opportunity to bring the hope of salvation to them. So from intentional, it goes to people, and then it goes contextual, and ultimately, it leads to our final way that evangelism must be continuous. Evangelism is continuous. How do we know this? In verse 17, it says, Paul went to the synagogue and the marketplace day by day. Day by day he went. He didn't say, oh, I see all this sinfulness. I'm going to go this one time and proclaim the gospel to him. That's good enough. No, he went day by day. In fact, Paul's life is a life of evangelism. Continuously and constantly he proclaimed the gospel, ultimately costing him his life. And so the people that heard the gospel from us yesterday are probably not the people who are going to hear the gospel from us today. And for all we know, that might be the last time we interact with them. And that might be their last opportunity to hear the gospel. 
And so we continuously and constantly proclaim that salvation comes from Christ alone. But we also do it continuously and constantly because we know that most of us don't believe the first time we hear the gospel. In fact, they've done great studies. Um, Depending on culture and context, it can take anywhere from 7 to 70 times, right? Maybe even more, but that's kind of what most studies show, for somebody hearing the gospel from when they first hear it to when they believe the gospel. 70 times. Even 7. 7 times, right? From hearing the gospel to believing, right? That means that the people we interact regularly with don't need to hear the gospel from us once. They need to hear the gospel from us every single day. Because often, if we were to look at our own hearts, we'd probably realize this is true, right? Breaking down the sin in our own hearts, the Spirit working, takes time. We do not like to give up our sin. And so often, right, the Spirit works not in a day, not in a moment. It can and it does, and we see that even in Scripture, right? Think of the Ethiopian eunuch, or think of the jailer, right? There's plenty of of times in Scripture, right, where the gospel is preached once and people repent and believe, but there's also plenty of times in Scripture where the gospel is preached many times before people repent and believe. There's no greater example of that than the disciples. The disciples took a lot of hearing the gospel before they repented and believed. And so we must continuously and constantly share the gospel. And listen, that's hard work. That means more rejection. That means more effort. That means more energy. It means more time. But it is the only way to effectively do what we're commanded to do. So what do we see here from Acts chapter 17? We see that evangelism is led by God. It begins with heartbreak over sinfulness. It's intentional intentionally focus on other people in their context and continuously. That is what evangelism is. There's, there's more to it. If we walk through the Bible, we see a lot more about evangelism. But, but this brief passage shows us that these are six truths. And no matter what context we're in, no matter where we're at, no matter who we are, our evangelism must be marked by these things. And so I have three questions to ask, your, to ask yourself. As you sit in your pew, ask yourself these three questions. The first do I believe the gospel? You cannot share the truth unless you first believe the truth. So do you believe the gospel? Do you trust in Christ alone to save you for your sins? Have you repented of your sins and turned to Christ for salvation? Will you believe right now? Will you believe for the first time or you continue to believe? Do you believe the gospel? Next, Are you heartbroken over the lostness around you? Does your heart break because of the sinfulness and the brokenness you see around you? As you ask yourself that question, if the answer is no, here's some follow-up questions to ask yourself. Does your heart break over your own sinfulness? Are you regularly, routinely brokenhearted because you realize how much of a depraved sinner you are? And then does that turn to joy because you realize how great and amazing and gracious God is? Don't stop at the first thing. Make sure you move to the second thing. That's the first question to ask. The second question is, are you around lost people? Maybe the reason that you're not heartbroken over lostness is because you're not around lost people. Paul saw the city was full of idols. That means he was out in the city. Right? You must be around lost people to be broken for the lost. 
Maybe do you love like Jesus loves? Jesus loved you so much that he came to die while you were a sinner. Do you love like Jesus loves? When you go to work tomorrow, do you weep at seeing all the lost people in your workplace? When you go to work at the hospital tomorrow and you're treating a patient, does that cause you to weep knowing how many patients come through your door not knowing the gospel? When you go to school tomorrow, when you go to teach tomorrow and you walk through the halls at Enid High, do you weep over how many of those kids will never hear the gospel? I don't have all the statistics in front of me. I'm sure if we took the time, we could compile them. But I think if we were being generous this morning, we would say in Enid, in Bible-believing churches in Enid, there are maybe 10,000 people in those churches. And then let's be extra generous and double that number to 20,000. And say maybe there are 20,000 people in Bible-believing churches in Enid this morning. Enid has a population of 55,000 people. And so that means that those people coming to those churches are the only people that live in Enid, which we know from our own congregation isn't true, we would know that the majority of people that we interact with every day are lost and on their way to hell. One of the things I love working with students is to say, well, all my friends are saved. Or I only know Christians. Statistically, that's impossible. There's not enough people who proclaim the gospel. There's not enough people in our churches for that to be statistically possible. The same is true for you wherever you work. You interact with lost people more than you realize. Does that break your heart? And that kind of leads to the third question. Are you intentional in your evangelism? Are you intentional in sharing the gospel? Do you go to people regularly, routinely, and contextually to share the gospel over time? If we want to reach the lost... We can't just do it tomorrow. We can't just do it this week. We can't just do it next month. We must do it every day, every moment, until God calls us home. Because there will always be lost people who need to hear that Jesus Christ saves. And so let me leave you with this concluding thought. Making disciples is something we talk about a lot. In fact, our mission statement as a church, right? Love God, serve others, and make disciples. Making disciples is an explicit task given unto us by Jesus, right? It's the last thing he says before he leaves the earth, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, right? It's the umbrella under which all other commands of God fall, right? Teach them to obey all that I have commanded. It all falls under making disciples. And so it's the purpose of every Christian alive. Being a disciple and making disciples is the purpose of every Christian who's ever lived or ever will live. And so evangelism, then, is the foundation of Christian discipleship. And so it moves and drives all the ways that we think about discipleship. It is impossible for us to make disciples if we are not evangelizing. Evangelism should be core to our identity as believers and as a church. And so let us leave with this challenge this morning. Let us not grow lax or complacent in proclaiming the good news that Jesus saves. Let us be about the business of making disciples by evangelizing the lost, proclaiming to them that salvation is found 
in Christ alone. Put that challenge before us. Let's be about the business of making disciples. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we come to you this morning seeing from your word the heart you have for saving the lost. Lord, give us that heart. Give us that desire. I pray for those in the room that do not know you as their Savior, that you would cause your spirit to stir up in them a desire to be saved. Let them come this morning to hear. Let them come this morning to find salvation in you. And let us as a church and as a people be moved to find salvation in you alone and to proclaim salvation in you alone to the world around us. Give us opportunities, give us boldness, and give us confidence. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And the whole church said, Amen. Amen. At this time, we're going to move into a hymn of invitation. And so I encourage you, if you need to repent for the first time, or maybe you've repented before, but, but you're convicted, let this be an opportunity to do that. Reflect on the words of this text that Jesus paid it all. He is sufficient, he is able, and he's offering salvation to you. Let us turn to him for salvation. Will you stand and sing?